0: Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 189. Smoking Bishop. This episode of Craft lit is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. You can find out more from the Knitting Out Loud catalog at knittingoutloud.com. Also Knit Circus Magazine featuring three rings of knitting, sewing and fun. You can see more of Knit Circus Magazine at www.knitcircus.com. Also, Scribe Tutor: the online writing tutor offering personalized and convenient writing help for all ages. You can see more at ScribeTutor.com. Well, hello it's been a busy week at Lake Wobegon <laughs> Just kidding no, it's been uh oh gosh, all sorts of exciting things are happening. Thanksgiving is coming. Mark Twain is over. Some of you are cheering. It's all good stuff. But, but, one of the many nifty things is the Dickens blog hop. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've never done a kind of blog hop like this, where everything is all Linky linked together. There's an online linking program thing called Linky. It makes sense, right? And it's kind of like the old-fashioned um, blog blog links where, you know, you could, it was a read around kind of thing where you could go blog to blog to blog randomly. This is much more specific. For this, you can, you can um, see, actually see the posts that you are being linked to. So this Dickens of a Christmas blog hop that I've been working on uh, has links to making Christmas pudding and roasting a goose and making mincemeat pies and all of this really fabulous stuff, including Smoking Bishop. I can't remember. I don't think I'd made this when I talked to you last, but oh my goodness. Here's what you do. Port. It can be cheap port. I use cheap port. Port, orange, really nice, good looking, you know, bright orange, orange. Cloves, spicy spices, things like that. You can read more specifics at the foodie blog that we link to. And then um, I did crockpot. I did Cimarron Low in crockpot for, I don't know, a couple hours from the beginning of dinner until when the kids went to bed. How's that for time specificity? And, uh, and then we, we drank. You let it cool off a little bit and then you drink it. And oh my good Glorioski, it's good. It's really good. Now, I've had mulled wine before, which is fine. And I've had, obviously, sangria and things like that. There's something about the port element the Smoking Bishop? That is really good. And why Smoking Bishop, you may ask? The answer is I don't know, but it's mentioned at the end of A Christmas Carol, which is what we're going to listen to the first uh, third of today. Before we get to A Christmas Carol, though, as a way of finishing off Mark Twain, I'm going to play you stunning, stupendous, sterling audio from Peter French. Peter was our tour guide extraordinaire on the trip to London, Bath, and Wales. And the last word I'm going to say on Peter is this If you ever find that there is a tour anywhere in Europe that Peter French is hosting, do whatever you can. To get on said tour. This guy is unbelievable. And I think once you listen to him read this poem, you will agree. So, here's why I'm playing it. The the last episode, the the end of A Connecticut Yankee, was long, in fact, so long that I had to split it into two versions. So fine. So that's that's what it was. I wasn't going to add any more audio to the end. I had originally planned on playing this poem uh, immediately after the end of of a, a Connecticut Yankee. So here's what I'm going to ask. If you have not listened to Connecticut Yankee all the way through, or if you didn't listen to the end, I am going to ask you to st- skip ahead to a specific time code, because I don't want the playing of this poem to give away the end of Connecticut Yankee, because someday... I hope that you will go read the show notes for episode 188 and see the comments that people have left there about how they'd almost given up on Connecticut Yankee. They really didn't like the boss all that much. He's so annoying. But because they trusted me or because, you know, they had heard good things about the book or because they generally liked Twain and couldn't figure out why they weren't getting into this one, they stuck it out. Well, some of those people are starting to post in the show notes and say what I was hoping you'd say, so thank you very much that that uh, it was worth it, and it is a kick in the teeth and and painful in that good kind of twain satire is not pretty kind of way, so I'm going to ask you if you have not finished Connecticut Yankee, even if you think you never will, just skip ahead. The time code that you want to skip ahead to is about 1818. So uh, go ahead and, and skip to that time code. If you finished Connecticut Yankee, then you keep listening and I'll I'll give everybody a little time to to arrange your mp3 player. La la la. Okay, so now that everybody else has skipped ahead, all six of us can sit here and listen to In Flanders Field, read for us by Peter French. Now, for, for those of you who are not aware of this poem, this is a World War I poem, and a, a couple of people emailed me, I think on, on Ravelry, actually, saying, you know, I didn't really get the World War I reference. And it hadn't dawned on me because I just kind of assume that all children are forced to read All Quiet on the Western Front. Again, one of those books that I think 14-year-olds really shouldn't be reading because how in the world are you supposed to have any connection to trench warfare uh, as a 14-year-old? Or perhaps maybe it just goes back again to if you had my freshman year English teacher, how in the world could you possibly have had any kind of attachment to World War I? Anyway, uh, trench warfare, machine guns, barbed wire, uh, electrocuted fences, uh, all of those things were used in World War I. And in fact, when I taught uh, Gatsby, I think I mentioned this on the podcast a long time ago. I realized that the kids were going to have a very difficult time getting from Huck Finn up to Gatsby. And so here for you who are teachers, here is my handy teaching tip. Use video. I used clips from Age of Innocence to get uh, Victorian New York and just kind of Victorian society. I used a ballroom scene and a dining scene and... um a non-kissing kissing kissing scene where it was, you know, I want to kiss you, but I can't kind of thing. And then we went to uh, Legends of the Fall. Uh, Again, a formal dinner, but because they're out west and because it was a little later in time, uh, the girl wasn't quite so corseted. The guys were still wearing ties, but it was a little more relaxed, just, just in general. And then it, I, I took it from that kind of quiet, stately, reserved Montana existence to the same movie, Legends of the Fall, still Brad Pitt, still uh, the kid who was Elliot from E.T., but now they're in the war. And every year that I did this, I, w- I finally had to start warning the children because every year, kids, high school kids, these are 17-year-old city kids, wound up weeping because the shock to your system between this quiet stately Victorian New York and, and quiet, polite Montana circa, you know, nineteen fourteen and and the, the juxtaposition between those two quiet times and this mechanized hell that these poor men were fighting in is so appalling and and just wrong. You know what we what we the position that we put those men into, um, because you know we we can always invent better ways to kill people, and we we continue to do so. And nothing showed it better than juxtaposing those two sets of images, because the the scene that I used, and it was awful. It's um, machine guns, barbed wire. Uh, guns, obviously, and mustard gas. Now, the one thing that Twain didn't do was um, mustard gas, but it, because it, the, that byproduct of uh, a different chemical proce- process hadn't been uh, discovered to be an effective war tool yet when he was writing the, the book, or at least, at least people hadn't heard about it yet. Um, he did, however, if you recall, use the idea of toxic air to... Kill people. So, you know, it's kind of spooky that in 1889, Twain could look forward into the future 25 years and already see the future of warfare, um, and 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 how horrible that all of the the genius things that the boss very smugly could come up with and and do, you know, telephones and bicycles and all these things that he could build. He knew how to do all, you know, he carried that knowledge with him back in time. But then al- along with that, uh, purposefully or not, Twain recognized, uh, along with that came the knowledge of how to kill people more efficiently. and um, And that's kind of a horror. Well, after World War I, uh, you may know, in Flanders Fields, you, know, may, you may know um, Dulce et Decorum Est. It is right and proper to die for the motherland. Um, Wilfred Owen's poem uh, is that, that one, which I used in class. In Flanders Fields is a little harder to get into than Dulce et Decorum Est. And as consequence, I never taught it in the classroom. Well, now that I have Peter French speaking it to us... Uh, I wish I was in a classroom again, because I, I think um, you understand why we continue to write poetry when you hear someone speak poetry the way Peter can. So I'm not going to yammer anymore. Here is Peter French reading in Flanders Fields.
1: So I thought, as it's sort of uh, sadness, at, uh, Heather you all know Heather yeah. <laughs> sweet girl Heather really has been <laughs> nagging me and prodding me to do Dylan Thomas and all this and that I thought I would just do Flanders Fields for you and I would end with a Celtic prayer come blessing as we've been to a Celtic country so I'll do Flanders because uh, The the First World War was much more horrendous than the Second. We lost many more lives in the First World War, for nothing, nothing was achieved in the First World War. The Second World War, there was a reason. His name was Adolf Hitler, and he had to be stopped. But basically, the First World War was a quarrel between the German Emperor the Hohenzollerns, and the Romanovs, and the Habsburgs in Austria. Those three, it was a family quarrel originally, which then involved the whole of Europe. And everybody thought it would be over by winter, and it went on for four years. And by the end of it, the Emperor of Germany had been deposed, the Austro-Hungarian Empire didn't exist anymore, and the Tsar had lost his throne. And of course England got dragged in because George V was a cousin to the Tsar of Russia. And also the Kaiser was the grandson of Queen Victoria. So it was a web of royalty that pulled us, sucked us in. And of course to begin with, the youth couldn't wait to fight. You know, there's nothing like a good war until it happens, of course. So we lost the cream of our youth, so much talent, of painters, of poets, of artists, of dancers. A a whole generation was wasted. It was absolutely appalling, whereas with the Second World War there was a cause. And as I told you, it happened in Flanders, and in the wheat fields, before the fighting started, these wild red poppies grew among the corn, and blue in the wind, which is, and then it was replaced by the shells, by the blood, and this is why we chose the Flanders poppy as the symbol for all soldiers that have died in war, originally the First World War, but to cover all wars. So this is, a, is quite, it, it's actually uh, a poem that is saying carry on fighting. It's not uh, a condemnation of the war, uh, as you will hear. It is, carry on. Don't let us down that are dead. Kill them. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's the beginning part uh, of the war, really. Towards the end, we got the real war poets that realised what was going on, and we got uh, the uh, cynical uh, the poets. OK, so it's simply called Flanders Field by a poet called John McCrae. In Flanders fields the poppies blow Between the crosses row on row That mark our place and in the sky The larks still bravely singing fly Scarce heard amid the guns below We are the dead, short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw, the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. So the little, the little Celtic blessing, it's Irish, of course. May the road always rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rain fall soft upon your land. And until we meet again, may the lord hold you in the hollow of his hand that is my wish to you
0: i know the quality of his audio left a lot to be desired i could not get him to stop moving long enough when we were off the bus to uh, to record any any for for just me but uh but Peter was pretty wonderful, and I did leave a little bit of his his other jokey audio in about the war because he uh his his father was uh, of of the correct age for the group that would have gone to fight or at least have have been potentially dragged into fighting and so i th- I think peter had um a, a, a bit of a more visceral reaction to uh, to the wars. He was a, a schoolmate of Derek Jacobi and Ian McKellen and, and uh, guys like that. So that kind of gives you an opportunity to place Peter in time. Anyway, now we will welcome back the <laughs> the rest of our listeners who uh, who didn't finish Mark Twain, and uh, and therefore that would have spoiled a whole bunch of stuff for them at the end of. Connecticut Yankee, should you ever want to go back and listen. So, the other reason that I wanted to play that audio is to kind of get us into the right mind frame, kind of a a melancholy mind frame, because, of course, A Christmas Carol is, uh, it's a teaching story, but it is also actually, um, well, there are many Stage versions and film versions of of this story those those are not news, and some of them are really quite good, but I don't think any of them well my, my husband maintains that Scrooge with Bill Murray is really the only one that he felt came close to the uh, desperation and the the terror that Scrooge really feels by the end of the story and he he may have he may have something uh in that. Because certainly there there are a couple of scenes at the the end of Scrooge that are really uh, something else. But um, I don't know the the book is, is certainly the ghosts are harder on Scrooge than I think I remember from from the movie versions. Except maybe well in Scrooge Carol Kane is pretty t- well she keeps whacking Bill Murray <laughs> on the head, which uh, comes close. But, but, regardless, here are two things that are happening. One, I am releasing this podcast episode two different ways, and I am going to put a new poll up in the show notes, and it goes like this. I'm replacing the book poll, because we are quite definitely doing A Woman in White in January. That's when we're going to start it. I'm listening to it already. It's really good. You guys are going to love it. Uh, The poll is going to be like this mp3 or uh, it's like mv4 or m4a or something like that it's a different audio format i know that on itunes and on ipods itouches and ipads and uh, iphones there is a video audio format that will allow you to number one see the chapter markers. And number two, see pictures. Well, the the way that I originally released this podcast, the shortened version of this podcast for uh, the Dickens blog hop included pictures, pictures of all of the things that I talk about. And so I wanted to include that for you. However, I know that not everybody on the planet is on an Apple product. I don't know what will happen if I release the picture-friendly version on the regular feed. I have no idea. I don't know if it's going to, you know, freeze people's machinery, or, or, or if it just won't even bother downloading onto Juice or or any of the other um, you know po- podcast uh, aggregators. So I'm gonna I'm gonna post it and then i'm going to post links on the show notes that show you both different ways and and then i'm going to have a poll in the in the sidebar to let you tell me which way you like it best because i i want to i want to make sure that i'm giving you what works best for you and i certainly don't want to eliminate options for anyone so i i kind of want to figure out what what is needed the problem is, it will cost me twice as much to do two different versions of the podcast for every episode, because it would be requiring double the storage space. So I, I am going to have to stick to one, you know, format ultimately, but I at least wanted to test this out, at least with the Christmas Carol, because uh, because there, there really are pictures that It'll be so much easier if you can just look at them while you're listening. So I know people on the, the iPhone app and stuff, you guys should be fine listening to the the funky version. And anyone who's just coming to the show notes to play it, you should be fine and you should actually be able to see the pictures. Uh, it gets weird when it gets into other formats of of listening. But there is good news. People who own droids, Android phones the Craftlit Droid app should be out either the Monday or Tuesday before Thanksgiving or the Monday or Tuesday after Thanksgiving. So you will be able to listen on the go, watch the pictures as they show up on the go. And uh, what that means is that instead of having to download all of the audio to your phone or iPod or iTouch or Droid, whatever, you will be able to listen via streaming, uh, which saves a lot of space on your your phone, and you'll be have you'll be able to have access to every episode, you know, on the fly as you, as you want. Now, for iPhone, iTouch, and soon Droid users, the other thing to know is that if you're going to go on a plane and listen, you can. I think it's. I think they have you star episodes. Like, ooh, I want to listen to. You know, 187, 188, and 189 on the plane this Thanksgiving. So I'm going to star those. Once you star them, those episodes specifically will download to your device so that you can listen to them even when you're not connected to the interwebs. Okay? So happy news for droid users. I am still waiting to hear about the Blackberry app. I thought they were gonna do that one first. They don't really tell us a whole lot in advance, because I only just learned about this Android thing um Friday. And I've been asking them now for, when was the last time I said I asked them? Two months ago when the BlackBerry and Android stuff was coming. So, you know, who knows? Anyway, A Christmas Carol. I am at this point going to load the Christmas Carol podcast that I did for the blog hop, just whole cloth in here. And then... Episode 190 and Episode 191 will be just straight up the Christmas Carol podcasts. I'm going to preset them to release the Sunday after Thanksgiving, or the, the I'm sorry, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, and the Saturday of the first week of December. Uh, I have a lot I have to do between now and then, and I would rather that not impact you, So since I have already done these episodes, I'm going to just put them up and I figure you'll be able to handle it. So there won't be any extraneous knitting news or or anything like that, even though there's tons of it, I'm going to save that for the second week of December. So I hope that's okay with everyone. I really hope you enjoy A Christmas Carol. I sure had a good time recording this. I was very surprised by a number of different things in the story. And, and I really, it was fun. I had a good time doing it. So, I think that's, I think that's everything you need to know. I hope you enjoy listening. And I will be back with you, officially back with you, The weekend of December 11th and 12th. So uh, things will have settled down. Ha ha ha. She says humorously, what with it being the month of December. Uh, Things will have settled down and I will be back podcasting the 11th and 12th and then the 18th and 19th. And then if I can, I will put out a Christmas podcast for you. And I'm just going to do short stories and, and things like that that we had talked about. And then starting in January, we will get going with A Woman in White. So, with all of that, I now leave you with Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol. Well, there are a few things you should know before we start listening, starting with a few important things about Charles Dickens himself. The man was born February 7th, 1812, so early in the 1800s. Something very important happened in 1834, and that was the passage of what was called the Poor Law. In England, what this meant was that if you were poor and you got behind on your payments for things, you could be sent to the workhouse. Now, for those of you who've seen movie versions or cartoon versions, or you've listened to Patrick Stewart read A Christmas Carol, you've probably heard Scrooge mention workhouses. These were miserable places, and it is important because when Dickens was nine... His family moved to London, and by the time he was 12, his father was arrested and sent to debtor's prison. Now, Dickens was placed into a workhouse by his mother. The other children, the younger children, moved into prison with their father, if you can imagine. Dickens, however, was left on his own at the ripe old age of 12, working in a boot black company where he was pasting labels on the bottles of black shoe polish. He was not happy. Now, part of the reason he wasn't happy was because he felt he was too good for this job. And so he was kind of miserable there. David Copperfield, that may have sounded familiar. David Copperfield is in some ways, largely an autobiographical work. It came much later. Um, The first thing Dickens wrote was Pickwick Papers, but he never really got over his mother sending him to the workhouse. And, uh, and he wound up having to work as a child a couple of times. But eventually he, he, you know, did, they got back on their feet. He did well. He went to um, school. He became a law clerk and then a, a court reporter. And then he became, at the age of 24, 25, a rather well known author right away with Pickwick Papers. Well, by the time he wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843, so he's 31 years old now, he, he was, he was well known enough. That he was able to pull off a couple of interesting things. The poor law had been passed. He had had to work as a child. Lots of stuff had kind of been building up. And one of the interesting things was that Dickens' family was Unitarian. They weren't Church of England. And if you if you know anything about the Universalist Unitarian Church, and this is being said as a, a layperson, I've gone to a few Unitarian services. I have friends who are Unitarians. But you you don't often hear... Of people uh, witnessing or spreading the gospel, you don't even necessarily hear Jesus mentioned all that much. There's a, a large focus on on good works, on on doing things for others, and uh, and striving to live uh, a good life, and um, and not so heavy a focus on uh, grace and uh, and and things like that. And Dickens wound up at the. At the, the edge of Christianity that was probably, uh, one of the, the most welcoming and open ends of the religion where it was more important to enjoy the world that you had been given and do good things for people so that everyone could enjoy the world. And, and that's kind of where his, his impetus was coming from. Now, as always with these things, if I have gotten something wrong on the religion thing, I hope you know you are more than free to email in or record and send in comments that will expand on what I just said about Dickens and Unitarian Universalist Church and theology and all of that stuff. Um, because you know it's it's always a tricky subject, and you don't want to step on anyone's toes. But it it is interesting just how uh, almost but not quite secular the story is. it's The themes are universal, certainly, you know, redemption and, and uh, finding your way through difficult uh, kind of existential morasses and, and things like that. But, uh, but, you know, it is all contained within this one um, largely religious story. And so I, I just wanted to make it clear that, that Dickens was coming from a fairly specific point of view and not one that was, prior to this, universally embraced um, Christmas could be a very sober time back then for a lot of people. So Dickens was kind of throwing a wrench in the works that way. Now, one of the things that may have struck you as I was describing Dickens' Unitarian background is that a, a lot of themes in A Christmas Carol do go back to that kind of inclusive deed-doing, acts above um, above all. Kind of attitude. Um, Certainly, in in a number of the characters, you see the importance of enjoying Christmas. Well, this was actually kind of a change in uh, 1843. There was uh, the Puritan roots that had grown in England were still semi-present, and and Christmas was for many people a very austere time. It wasn't as celebratory as it was. Soberly religious. Well, Dickens is really quite responsible for Christmas of today being the Christmas that we understand. You won't see gift giving. You won't see kind of the um, consumption on the grand scale that people in the United States tend to uh, perpetrate on each other when they are celebrating Christmas. But you will see the merrymaking, as you as you know, if you've seen any of the movies. There's a lot of Christmas cheer going on. And that, that was actually something that Dickens was criticized for when, when the book originally came out. Now, one other interesting thing about Dickens in this book, he kind of had a falling out with his publishers uh, right, right before the writing of this book. He wrote it over October and November. And then instead of handing the book to his publisher, he went and printed it himself. Now, he printed it beautifully. Uh, there were engravings that were I think there are six plates in the book, which, if you are watching this on the Mama onits website, you are actually able to see because i 'm loading those in here so that you can see some of the pictures from the book, also pictures of Dickens and London at the time and Victorian stuff, just to kind of keep it interesting. Dickens Dickens went out of his way to make this volume, this thin volume accessible to everyone. So he he bound it beautifully. He included these beautiful plates. The the typesetting was lovely and it only cost 5 shillings. And as a consequence, before Christmas even started, he sold out all 6000 copies of the book. And then it went into reprints. So he made some very specific decisions. He was very unhappy with the workhouse situation, with the poor laws, with the way wealthy people treated poor people. There was very much an attitude that if you were poor, it was because you were lazy. Does this sound familiar? And he wrote this allegorical story very specifically to combat that and to show we really are all in this together. And How much does it cost to smile at someone? And how much does it cost to treat people with respect? It's a lovely idea that still carries through to today. So now, today what we're going to listen to are the first two staves of a Christmas carol. Now, if you're a musician, you know that musical notation is written on a staff. Well, because this is called a Christmas carol, the five parts are broken into staves. So stave the first, Marley's ghost. Stave the second, ghost of Christmas past. Stave the third, ghost of Christmas present. Stave the fourth, ghost of Christmas yet to come. And then stave the fifth is the end of the book. We today are going to listen to staves one and two. The next episode will be stave three, and the last episode will be staves four and five. So we're going to break the book up a little bit. That means that the first episode and the last episode are going to be the longest episodes. Now, the England that Dickens was living in was a dark one. And I don't mean that metaphorically, I mean that literally. People were burning coal for heat and for fuel, for cooking. And as a consequence, the the buildings were black. The air was black. The ground was black. Your lungs were black. Your clothes were black. Everything was dingy and gray and dirty. And there are some beautiful descriptions that Dickens gives as, uh, in the beginning as Scrooge is at work and, and then walking back to his apartment of how the city looked and felt and this kind of oppressive nature of how how dark and dim everything was well that that was very true it was also the cause of that pea soup fog that you hear of back in in Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper stories the the layer of coal dust in the air was so thick that at night this fog would creep off the Thames because the water vapor couldn't go anywhere this is like in Arizona, where I live, in the wintertime, our air quality is lousy, because you have this uh, inversion effect happening, where all of the pollution is trapped and kept down by the way the atmosphere is moving in the wintertime. As a consequence, it's kind of eh, in the winter, but in the summer, when that inversion layer isn't happening, we have bright, bright blue, clear skies here. London didn't really get that a whole lot instead you get the fog which you don't get anymore now that the pollution has really been cleaned up so good thing all around for the good people of london now there are a couple of terms that you should know before we start listening to the the first stave the first is accounting house which is where uh, scrooge works he's basically an accountant he's keeping books for different businesses so that's the first thing the second thing is he mentions treadmills. Now, this is taken out of the movies because we no longer think of treadmills the same way. What you should know is that a treadmill was a Victorian, well, torture device in many ways. This is in the prison. They would have men walking um, in, a, in a row. I've actually included a picture of this in the show notes and in the, um, the, the video version of this that you can see on the, on the website. Um, there, there are men walking a treadmill like a like a paddle wheel for um, for an, an old steam engine i mean for a you know a steamboat it's it's appalling, and this is what the men had to do when they were in prison, so you know they were providing energy for whatever it was that the prison wanted them to provide energy for, but horrible you just had to keep walking and it, certainly, if you flagged or started to fail, there wasn't really anywhere for you to go but falling off this massive thing and that Probably was going to crack you on the head pretty good. So that was one thing. There's also a comment that uh, Scrooge makes about touching his repeater when he's uh, made nervous by, by the ghosts. Now, the version of a repeater that I knew of was a pistol, but that is not what he's touching. A repeater was another name for an alarm clock, something that would repeat the time for you and, uh, and do it day after day. So I've also included a picture of that for you. So, armed with all of this knowledge, I am going to play you Stave the First. This is the opening to A Christmas Carol with with Dickens. Uh, one of the things that's really spectacular about having an opportunity to listen to him instead of see somebody else's vision of what he was trying to do is that you get to hear his descriptions, and they are lovely. Dickens does a couple of things that I think are really interesting in the story. Number one... He does an excellent job with his settings. He always does. Just like he does an excellent job with naming characters, like Ebenezer Scrooge, which has become kind of the ubiquitous name for someone who is stingy and miserly. We know them as a Scrooge. Um Mr. Bumble, you know, there are all these names that he's used over time uh, that have just become part of our lexicon. Well, listen to not just the names but also the way he uses uh, idiomatic phrases and colloquial phrases. You'll hear him using the term dead as a doornail. And he'll actually go into, you know, just a conversation about why did we say that? Well, it turns out, as you can tell from the way he discusses it, that dead as a doornail was actually a phrase that was common at the time. He actually questions the veracity of how dead a doornail could possibly be, and he's doing it as a kind of a clever and a friendly and a funny way of, of drawing you into his storytelling style. So, Dickens, the narrator, is always present in this book. You will hear him talking to you all the time. Little asides, little jokes that he's giving to you that are, you know, unknown to Scrooge or Cratchit or Fred or any of the other main characters. The other thing that he does is a really nice job of setting the spookiness of the first stave. There are images that he uses that are ignored, actually, in many of the, the, the versions, the different film versions of, of the story. And uh, and you'll find that there's been quite a lot that's been cut, not so much from this first and second stave, but from the third, fourth, and fifth stave. There are, there are quite a few um, pretty major chunks that get taken out in the film versions and uh, expurgated versions that you may have heard, uh, the Patrick Stewart one being, I think, one of the, the best. So without any further ado, I will give you the audio for Stave the First of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens.
2: A Christmas Carol in Prose, being A Ghost Story of Christmas by Charles Dickens. Preface. I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Your faithful friend and servant, C.D., December 1843. Stave 1. Marley's Ghost. "'Marley was dead to begin with. "'There is no doubt whatsoever about that. "'The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, "'the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. "'Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change "'for anything he chose to put his hand to. "'Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. "'Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge "'what there is particularly dead about a doornail. "'I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail "'as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade,' But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hand shall not disturb it, or the country is done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat, emphatically, that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. And even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event but that he was an excellent man of business in the very day of the funeral and solemnized it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This should be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, There would be nothing more remarkable in his taking a stroll at night in an easterly wind upon his own ramparts than there would be of any other middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot, say, St. Paul's Churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster." The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rime was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dark days and didn't thought one degree of Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he, no falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather did nowhere to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast one advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him on the street to say, with gladsome looks, "'My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me?' No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle, no children asked him what it was o'clock, no man or woman ever once in all his life inquired to the way to such-and-such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on would tug their owners into hallways and up courts and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil-eyed dark master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. To etch his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance, was what the knowing ones called nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting-house. It was cold, Bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts, and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones toward them. The city clocks had just gone three, but it was quite dark already, it had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in windows of the neighboring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole, and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought nature lived hard by and was brewing on a larger scale. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep an eye upon his clock, when a dismal little cell beyond sort of tank was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal-box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself with the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. A merry Christmas, uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who had come upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah! said Scrooge, humbug! He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. "'Christmas a humbug, uncle?' said Scrooge's nephew. "'You don't mean that, I'm sure.' "'I do,' said Scrooge. "'Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough.' "'Come, then,' returned the nephew gaily. "'What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough.' Scrooge, having no better answer, ready at the spur of the moment, said, "'Bah!' again, and followed up with, "'Humbug!' "'Don't be cross, uncle,' said the nephew. "'What else can I be?' returned the uncle. "'When I live in such a world of fools as this. "'Merry Christmas, out upon Merry Christmas. "'What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money, "'a time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer, "'time for balancing of books and having every item in them "'through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? "'If I could work my will,' said Scrooge indignantly, "'every—' "'Idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips "'should be boiled in his own pudding "'and buried with a stick of holly through his heart. "'He should.' "'Uncle,' pleaded the nephew. "'Nephew!' returned the uncle sternly. "'Keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine.' "'Keep it,' repeated Scrooge's nephew. "'But you don't keep it. "'Let me leave it alone, then,' said Scrooge. "'Much good it may do you, much good it has ever done you.' There are many things from which I have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say," returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas-time, when it has come round, apart from the veneration to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women, seem, by one consent, to open the shut-up hearts freely, and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow-passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys, and therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold and silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good, and it will do me good, and I say, God bless it!' The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded, becoming immediately sensible of the impropriety he poked the fire. "'and extinguished the last frail spark forever. "'Let me hear another sound out of you,' said Scrooge, "'and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation.' "'You're quite a powerful speaker, sir,' he said, turning to his nephew. "'I wonder you don't go into Parliament. "'Don't be angry, uncle. Come dine with us tomorrow.' "'Scrooge said he would see him. Yes, indeed he would. "'He went up the whole length of expression "'and said that he would see him in that extremity first. "'But why?' cried Scrooge's nephew. "'Why?' "'Why did you get married?' said Scrooge. "'Because I fell in love.' "'Because you fell in love,' growled Scrooge, "'as if it were the only thing in the world more ridiculous than a merry Christmas. "'Good afternoon!' "'Nay, uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. "'Why give it as a reason for not coming now?' "'Good afternoon,' said Scrooge. "'I want nothing from you. "'I ask nothing of you.' "'Why cannot we be friends?' "'Good afternoon!' "'I am sorry, with all my heart, that I find you so resolute. "'We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, "'but I have made the trial in homage to Christmas, "'and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. "'So a merry Christmas, uncle!' "'Good afternoon!' said Scrooge. "'And a happy New Year!' "'Good afternoon!' said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word, notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow his greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. "'There's another fellow,' muttered Scrooge, who overheard him. "'My clerk, with fifteen shillings a week, and a wife and family talking about a merry Christmas, or retire to bedlam!' This lunatic, in letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. The "'Scrooge and Marley's, I believe,' said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. "'Have I had the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge and Mr. Marley?' And "'Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years,' Scrooge replied. "'He died seven years ago this very night.' "'But well, we have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner,' said the gentleman.' presenting his credentials. It certainly was, for they had been two kindred spirits. At the ominous word liberality Scrooge frowned and shook his head and handed the credentials back. "'This festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge,' said this gentleman, taking up a pen, "'it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at this present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries.' Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir.' "'Are there no prisons?' said Scrooge. "'Plenty of prisons,' said the gentleman, laying down his pen again. "'And the Union workhouses?' demanded Scrooge. "'Are they still in operation?' "'They are still,' returned the gentleman. "'I wish I could say they were not.' "'The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigor, then?' said Scrooge. "'They're both very busy, sir.' Oh, I was afraid from what you said at first "'that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course.' said Scrooge. "'I am very glad to hear it.' "'Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind and body to the multitude,' returned the gentleman. "'A few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund, to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is the time of all others when want is keenly felt, and abundance rejoices. Uh, what shall I put you down for?' "'Nothing,' Scrooge replied. "'You wish to be anonymous?' "'I wish to be left alone.' said Scrooge. "'Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments. I have mentioned they cost enough, and those who are badly off must go there.' "'Many can't go there, and many would rather die.' "'If they would rather die,' said Scrooge, "'they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides—' "'Excuse me, I don't know that, but you might know it,' observed the gentleman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that this would be useless to pursue the point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself and in a more facetious temper than usual with him. Meanwhile, the fog and darkness thickened so, that people ran about with flaring links proffering their services to go before horses and carriages and conduct them on their way. The ancient tower of the church, whose gruff old bell was always peeping slyly down at Scrooge out of a Gothic window in the wall, became invisible and struck the hours and quarters in the clouds, with tremendous vibrations afterwards as if its teeth were shattering in its frozen head up there. The cold became intense. In the main street, at the corner of the court, some labourers were repairing the gas-pipes and had lighted a great fire in a brazier, round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The water-plug being left in solitude, and its overflowings sullenly congealed and turned to misanthropic ice. The brightness of the shops, where holly sprigs and berries crackled in the lamp-heat of the windows, made pale faces ruddy as they passed. Poulter's and grocer's trades became a splendid joke, a glorious pageant in which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. The Lord Mayor, in the stronghold of the mighty mansion-house, gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as a Lord Mayor's household should, and even the little tailor whom he had fined five shillings on the previous Monday for being drunk and bloodthirsty in the streets stirred up to-morrow's pudding in his garret, while his lean wife and the babies sailed out to buy the beef. Foggier yet and colder, piercing, searching, biting cold, if the good Saint Dunstan had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that, instead of using his familiar weapons, then indeed he would have roared to lusty purpose— The owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with the Christmas carol, but at the first sound of, God bless you merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay, Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. At length the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill will Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clock in the tank, who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. "'You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose,' said Scrooge. "'If it's quite convenient, sir.' "'It's not convenient,' said Scrooge. "'And it's not fair. If I were to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used I'll be bound.' The clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work? The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge, buttoning his greatcoat to his chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. We'll be here all the earlier the next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with a growl. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no greatcoat, went down a slide on Cornhill at the end of the lane of boys twenty times, in honour of its being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt to play at Blind Man's Bluff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the papers, and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms, in a lowering pile of building up a yard, where it had so little business to be and that one could scarcely help fancying that I must have run there when it was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with other houses and forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices.' The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if the genius of the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold. Now, it is a fact that there was nothing in particular about the knocker on the door except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Also that Scrooge had little of what is called fancy about him, as any man in the city of London, even including which Isabel were the corporation, aldermen, and livery. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner that afternoon. And then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face! It was not in impenetrable shadow, as the other objects in the yard were, but in a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. He was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by a breath of hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That and its livid color made it horrible, but his horror seemed to be in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than a part of his own expression. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled, or that his blood was not conscious of a terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy, would be untrue, but he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it steadily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause, with a moment's irresolution before the shut door, and he did look cautiously behind this first, as if half expected to be terrified, with the sight of Marley's pigtails sticking out into the hall, but there was nothing in the back of the door "'except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. "'So he said, "'Poo-poo,' and closed it with a bang. "'The sound resounded through the house like thunder. "'Every room above and every cask in the wine merchant's cellars below "'appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. "'Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. "'He fastened the door and walked across the hall and up the stairs slowly, too, "'trimming the candle as he went.' You may talk vaguely about driving a coach and six up a good old flight of stairs or through a bad young act of Parliament, but I mean to say that you might have got a hearse up that staircase and taken it broadwise with the splinter bar toward the wall and the door towards the balustrades, and done it easy. There was plenty of width for that and room to spare, which is perhaps the reason why Scrooge thought he saw a locomotive hearse going on before him in the gloom. Half a dozen gas lamps out in the street wouldn't have lighted the entry too well, so you may suppose that it was pretty dark with Scrooge's dip. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do that. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room, all as he should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa, a small fire in the grate, spoon and basin ready, and the little saucepan of gruel Scrooge had a coat in his head upon the hob. Nobody under the bed, nobody in the closet, nobody in his dressing-gown, which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Lumber room as usual, old fire-guard, two shoes, two fish-baskets, washing-stand on three legs, and a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing-gown and slippers in his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all around with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. There were Cain's and Abels, Pharaoh's daughters, Queens of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air on clouds like feather beds, Abraham's belt as ours, apostles putting off to sea in butterboats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts, and yet that face of Marley, seven years dead came like the ancient prophet's rod and swallowed up the whole. If each smooth tile had been a blanket first, with power to shape some picture on its surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every one. "Humpbug," said Scrooge, and walked across the room. After several turns he sat down again. As he drew his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon the bell. "'a disused bell that hung in the room "'and communicated for some purpose now forgotten "'with the chamber in the highest story of the building. "'It was with great astonishment "'and with a strange, inexplicable dread "'that as he looked he saw this bell begin to swing. "'It swung so softly in the outset "'that it scarcely made a sound, "'but soon it rang loudly, "'and so did every bell in the house. "'This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, "'but it seemed an hour.' The bells ceased as they had begun together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks of the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below. "'then coming up the stairs, "'then coming straight towards the door. "'It's humbug still,' said Scrooge. "'I won't believe it!' "'His colour changed, though, when without a pause. "'It came on through the heavy door "'and passed into the room before his eyes. upon it coming in, the dying flame leapt up as though it cried, "'I know him! Marley's ghost!' "'and fell again.' "'The same face,' "'the very same. "'Marley in his pigtail, "'usual waistcoat, tights, and boots, "'the tassels on the latter bristling like his pigtail, "'and his coat skirts and the hair upon his head. "'The chain he drew was clasped about the middle. "'It was long and wound about him like a tail, "'and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely, "'of cash-boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, "'and heavy purses wrought in steel.' His body was transparent so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. Nor did he believe it even now, although he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes, and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound round its head and chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. "'How now?' said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. "'What do you want of me?' "'Much,' Marley's voice no doubt about it. "'Who are you?' "'Ask me who I was.' "'Who were you, then?' said Scrooge, raising his voice. "'You are particular for a shade.' He was going to say to a shade, but substitute this as more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you can you sit down? asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it, then! Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of its being possible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace as if he were quite used to it. "'You don't believe me,' observed the ghost. "'I don't,' said Scrooge. "'What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses?' "'I don't know,' said Scrooge. "'Why do you doubt your senses?' "'Because,' said Scrooge, "'a little thing affects them. "'A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. "'You may be an undigested bit of beef, "'a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, "'a fragment of an underdone potato.' There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror, for the spectre's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones. To sit, staring at those fixed, glazed eyes in silence for a moment, would play Scrooge felt the very deuce with him. There was something very awful, too, in the specter's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but it was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated as if by the hot vapour from an oven. "'You see this toothpick?' said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge, for the reason just assigned and wishing, though it were only for a second, to divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. "'I do.' replied the ghost. "'You are not looking at it,' said Scrooge. "'But I see it,' said the ghost, notwithstanding. "'Well,' said Scrooge, "'I have but to swallow this "'and be for the rest of my days "'persecuted by a legion of goblins "'all of my own creation. "'Humbug, I tell you, humbug!' "'This! "'The spirit raised a frightful cry "'and shook its chain "'with such a dismal and appalling noise "'that Scrooge held tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, his lower jaw dropped down upon his breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. "'Mercy!' he said. "'Dreadful apparition! Why do you trouble me?' "'Man of the worldly mind,' replied the ghost, "'do you believe in me or not?' "'I do,' said Scrooge. "'I must, but why do spirits walk the earth, "'or why do they come to me?' "'It is required of every man,' the ghost returned, "'that the spirit within him should walk abroad "'among his fellow men and travel far and wide, "'and if that spirit goes not forth in life, "'it is condemned to do so after death.' It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me, and witness what it cannot share. but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again the specter raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain. I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link, and yard by yard, and girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was as full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas eves ago. You have laboured on it since. It is a ponderous chain.' Scrooge glanced about him on the floor, in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. "'Jacob,' he said imploringly, "Oh, Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob!' "'I have none to give,' the ghost replied. "'It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would.' very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting-house, mark me. In life my spirit never rode beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. It was a habit of Scrooge whenever he became thoughtful to put his hands in his breeches-pockets. Pondering on what the ghost had said, he did so now, but without lifting up his eyes or getting off his knees. "'You must have been very slow about it, Jacob,' Scrooge observed in a business-like manner, though with humility and deference. "'Slow!' the ghost repeated. Seven years dead,' mused Scrooge, "'and travelling all the time.' "'The whole time,' said the ghost. "'No rest. No peace. Incessant torture and remorse.' "'You travel fast?' said Scrooge. "'On the wings of the wind,' replied the ghost. "'You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years,' said Scrooge. The ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry, and clanked its chain so hideously in the dead silence of the night that the ward would have been justified in indicting it for a nuisance. "'Oh, captive, bound, in double iron!' cried the phantom. "'Not to know!' the ages of incessant labor by immortal creatures, for this earth must pass into eternity before the good of which is susceptible is all developed. Not to know that any Christian spirit walking kindly in its little sphere, whatever it may be, will find its mortal life too short for its vast means of usefulness. Not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunity misuse. Yet such was I, oh, such was I!" You were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing his hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. He held up the chain at arm's length, as if it were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time of the rolling year, the spectre said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through the crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down and never reason to that blessed star which led the wise men to a poor abode, were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? Scrooge was very much dismayed to hear the spectre going on at this rate and began to quake exceedingly. "'Hear me,' said the ghost. "'My time is nearly gone.' "'I will,' said Scrooge. "'But don't be hard upon me. "'Don't be flowery, Jacob. "'Pray!' "'How is it that I appear before you in a shape that you can see I may not tell? "'I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day.' "'This was not an agreeable idea.' "'Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. "'That is no light part in my penance,' pursued the ghost.' I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You are always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank ye. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghosts had done. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. "'I—I I think I'd rather not,' said Scrooge. "'Without their visits,' said the ghost, "'you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. "'Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. "'Couldn't I take em all at once and have it over, Jacob?' "'Hitted Scrooge. "'Expect the second on the next night at the same hour, "'the third upon the next night "'when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. "'Look to see me no more, and look that for your own sake.' You remember what has passed between us. And when he said these words, the specter took its wrapper from the table and bound it around its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made when the jaws were brought together by the bandage. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found his supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude. With its chain wound over and about its arm, the apparition walked backward from him. And with every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer, Scrooge stopped. Not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms wandering hither and thither in restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, there might be guilty, governments were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant who it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery within them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good, in human matters, and had lost the power for ever. Whether these creatures faded into mist or mist enshrouded them he could not tell, but they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night became as it had been when he walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double-locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable and being from the emotion he had undergone of the fatigues of the day or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness upon the hour much in need of repose, went straight to bed without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant.
0: So that's the end of the first stave. Now, of course, we know what's coming next. We have the ghost of Christmas past, who is has been threatened to come and visit our man Ebenezer uh, at one o'clock. Well, now, a couple of interesting things are going to happen with the clock and the other situation, and that's where you're going to hear the the, uh, note about the repeater. There's also some really interesting descriptions of about the ghost of Christmas past. You have to listen and and think about um, Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast, The Candle. Just keep him in mind. I think the Jim Carrey version that came out a year or two ago, they actually got this ghost right in that version, which is kind of curious. However, I think our reader's voice does a really nice job with this, this particular ghost, too. His name is Glenn Holstrom, and he is a reader for LibriVox, dot org. That's L I B R I V O X dot org free voice. And all of this audio comes free from them from volunteers who have volunteered to read so that we can enjoy these books. So without any further ado, here comes stave two of a Christmas Carol.
2: The first of the three spirits When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that, looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavouring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighbouring church struck the four quarters, so he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve, then stopped. Twelve! It was past two when he went to bed. The clock was wrong, and icicle must have gotten to the works at twelve. He touched the spring of his repeater to correct the most preposterous clock. Its rapid little pulse beat twelve, and stopped. Why, it isn't possible, said Scrooge, that I can have slept through the whole day and far into the night. It isn't possible that anything has happened to the sun, and this is twelve at noon. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything, and he could see very little then. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold, and that there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there unquestionably would have been if night had beaten off bright day and taken possession of the world. This was a great relief because three days after sight of the first exchange you pay of Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge or his order and so forth would have become a mere United States security if there were no days to count by. Scrooge went to bed again and thought and thought and thought it over and over and over and could make nothing of it. The more he thought, the more perplexed he was, and the more he endeavored not to think, the more he thought. Molly's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after a mature inquiry, that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again, like a strong spring released to its first position and presented the same problem to be worked all through. Was it a dream or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chime had gone three quarters more, when he remembered, on a sudden, that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell tolled one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour had passed, and considering that he could no more go to sleep than go to heaven, this was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. The quarter was so long that he was more than once convinced that he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock. At length it broke upon his listening ear. Ding-dong! The quarter said Scrooge, Ding dong. past," said Scrooge, counting. Ding-dong! Half-past, said Scrooge. "'Ding-dong!' "'A quarter to it,' said Scrooge. "'Ding-dong!' "'The hour itself,' said Scrooge triumphantly, "'and nothing else.' He spoke before the hour-bell had sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon an instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. "'The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand.' not the curtains at his feet, nor the curtains at his back, but those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting up into a half recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew them, as close to it as I am now to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange figure. Like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white, as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle on it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were, like those upper members bare, It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round the waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It had a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and, in singular contradiction of that wintry emblem, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light by which all was visible which was doubtless the occasion of its using in its duller moments a great extinguisher for a cap which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not the strangest quality, for as its belt sparkled and, and glittered now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, Being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts, no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away, and in the very wonder of this it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. "'Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me?' asked Scrooge. "'I am.' The voice was soft and gentle singularly low, as if, instead of being so close beside him, it were at a distance. Who and what are you?' Scrooge demanded. "'I am the ghost of Christmas past.' "'Long past?' inquired Scrooge, observant of its dwarfish stature. "'No, your past.' "'Perhaps Scrooge could not have told anybody why, if anybody could have asked them.' But he had a special desire to see the spirit in his cap and begged him to be covered. "'What?' exclaimed the ghost. "'Would you so soon put out with worldly hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap and forced me through the whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow?' Scrooge reverently disclaimed all intention to offend any knowledge of having wilfully bonneted the spirit of any period in his life Then he made bold to inquire what business brought him here. Your welfare, said the ghost. Scrooge expressed himself much obliged, but could not help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conductive to that end. The spirit must have heard him thinking, for it said immediately, Your reclamation, then. Take heed. It put out his hand as it spoke, and clasped him gently by the arm. Rise, and walk with me. It would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead the weather and the hour were not adapted to pedestrian purposes, that bed was warm and the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing-gown, and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at the time. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window clasped his robe in supplication. "'I am mortal,' Scrooge remonstrated. "'and liable to fall. "'Bear but a touch of my hand there,' said the spirit, laying it upon his heart, "'and you shall be upheld in more than this.' "'As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall "'and stood upon an open country road, with fields on either hand. "'The city had entirely vanished. "'Not a vestige of it was to be seen. "'The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, "'for it was a clear, cold, wintry day, with snow upon the ground.' Good heaven said Scrooge, clasping his hands together as he looked about him. I was bred in this place, I was a boy here. The spirit gazed upon him mildly, its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odours floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long long forgotten. Your lip is trembling, said the ghost. And what is that upon your cheek?' Scrooge muttered with an unusual catching in his voice that it was a pimple, and begged the ghost to lead him where he would. "'You recollect the way?' inquired the spirit. "'Remember it!' cried Scrooge with fervor. "'I could walk it blindfolded!' Strange to have forgotten it for so many years observed the ghost. Let us go on.' They walked along the road, Scrooge recognizing every gate, every post, every tree, until a little market town appeared in the distance with its bridge, its church, and winding river. Some shaggy ponies were now seen trotting towards him with boys upon their backs, who called to other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other, until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. "'These are but shadows of things that have been,' said the ghost. "'They have no consciousness of us.' The Jocelyn travellers came on as they came. Scrooge knew and named them every one. Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas as they parted at cross-yards and byways for several homes? What was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas, what good had it ever done to him? The school is not quite deserted, said the ghost. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Scrooge said he knew it and he sobbed. They left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick with a little weathercock surmounted cupola on the roof and a bell hanging in it. It was a large house, but one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used. Their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken and their gates decayed. Fowls clucked and strutted in the stables, and the coach-houses and sheds were overrun with grass nor was it more retentive of its ancient state within. For entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms, they found them poorly furnished, cold and vast. There was an earthly savor in the air, a chilly barrenness in the place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not too much to eat. They went, the ghost and Scrooge, across the hall to a door at the back of the house. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare melancholy room, made bare still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form and wept to see his poor forgotten self as he used to be. Not a latent echo in the house, not a squeak and scuffle from the mice behind the panelling, not a drip from the half-thawed water spout in the dull yard behind, not a sigh among the leafless boughs of one despondent poplar, not the idle swinging of an empty stone-house door, no, not a clicking of the fire, but fell upon the heart of Scrooge with a softening influence and gave a freer passage to his tears. The spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self intent upon his reading. Suddenly a man in foreign garments, wonderfully real and distinct to look at, stood outside the window with an axe struck in his belt, and leading by the bridle an ass laden with wood. "'Why, it's Ali Baba!' Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. "'Dear old honest Ali Baba, yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time, when yon solitary child was left here all alone, he did come, for the first time, just like that. Poor boy! And Valentine,' said Scrooge, and his wild brother Orson, there they go. And what's-his-name, who was put down in his drawers asleep at the gate of Damascus? Don't you see him? And the sultan's groom turned upside down by the genie. <laughs> there he is upon his head. <laughs> I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? To hear Scrooge expanding on all the earnestness of the nature of such subjects, in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited face, would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city indeed. "'There's the parrot!' cried Scrooge, green body and yellow tail, with a thing like lettuce growing out of the top of his head. There he is! Poor Robinson Crusoe,' he called him when he came home again after sailing round the island. "'Poor Robinson Crusoe! Where have you been, Robinson Crusoe?' The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. He was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life in the little creek. "'Hullo! hop hello. <laughs> Then with the rapidity of transition, very foreign to his usual character, he said, in a pity of his former self. Poor boy. And cried again. I wish, Scrooge muttered, putting his hand in his pocket and looking about him after drying his eyes with his cuff. But it's too late now. What is the matter? asked the spirit. Nothing, said Scrooge. Nothing. There was a boy singing a Christmas carol in my door last night. I should like to have given him something, that's all.' The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand, saying as it did so, "'Let us see another Christmas.' Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker and more dirty. The panel shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling, and the naked lathes were shown instead. But how all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so, that there he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened. And a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in, putting her arms about his neck and, often kissing him, dressed him as her dear, dear brother. "'I have come to bring you home, dear brother,' said the child, clapping her tiny hands and bending down to laugh. "'To bring you home, home, home!' "'Home, little fan?' returned the boy. "'Yes,' said the child, brimful with glee. "'Home for good and all.' "'Home for ever and ever. "'Father is so much kinder than he used to be "'that home's like heaven.' "'He spoke so gently to me one dear night "'when I was going to bed "'that I was not afraid to ask him once more "'if you might come home, and he said, "'Yes, you should, and he sent me in a coach to bring you. "'And you're to be a man,' said the child, opening her eyes, "'and never come back here, but first "'we'll be together all Christmas long "'and have the merriest time in the world.' "'You're quite a woman, little fan,' exclaimed the boy. She clapped her hands and laughed, and tried to touch his head, but being too little, laughed again and stood on tiptoe to embrace him. She then began to drag him in her childish eagerness towards the door, and he, nothing loath to go, accompanied her. A terrible voice in the hall cried. "'Bring down Master Scrooge's box there!' And in the hall appeared the schoolmaster himself, who glared on Master Scrooge with a ferocious condensation, and threw him into a dreadful state of mind by shaking hands with him. He then conveyed him and his sister into the veriest old well of a shivering best parlour that he ever was seen, where the maps upon the wall and the celestial and terrestrial globes in the window were waxy with cold. Here he produced a decanter of curiously light wine and a block of curiously heavy cake, and administered installments to those dainties to the young people, at the same time sending out a meager servant to offer a glass of something to the postboy, who answered that he thanked the gentleman, but if it was the same tap as he had tasted before, he had rather not. Master Scrooge's trunk being, by this time, tied on to the top of the chaise. The children bade the schoolmaster goodbye willingly, and getting into it drove gaily down the garden sweep, the quick wheels dashing the hoar-frost and snow from the old dark leaves of the evergreens-like spray. "'Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered,' said the ghost. "'But she had a large heart.' "'So she had,' cried Scrooge. "'You're right. I will not gainsay it, spirit. God forbid!' "'She died a woman,' said the ghost, "'and had, as I think, children.' "'One child,' Scrooge returned. "'True,' said the ghost. "'Your nephew?' Scrooge seemed uneasy in his mind and answered briefly, "'Yes. Although they had but at that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of the city, where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that there, too, it was Christmas-time again, but it was evening and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. "'Know it!' said Scrooge. "'I was apprenticed here!' They went in. At the sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller he must have knocked his head against the ceiling, Scrooge cried in great excitement. Why, it's old Fezziwig, bless his heart, it's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capricious waistcoat, laughed all over himself, from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice, Yo-ho no there, Ebenezer, Dick! Scrooge's former self, now a grown young man, came briskly and accompanied by his fellow prentice. "'Dick Wilkins, to be sure,' said Scrooge to the ghost. "'Bless me, eyes! there he is. "'He was very much attached to me, was Dick. "'Poor Dick, dear, dear.' "'Yo-ho, my boys,' said Fezziwig. "'No more work tonight. "'Christmas Eve, Dick. "'Christmas, Ebenezer. "'Let's have the shutters up,' cried old Fezziwig "'with a sharp clap of his hands. "'Before a man can say Jack Robinson!' You wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it. They charged into the street with the shutters—one, two, three, had them up in their places, four, five, six, barred em and pinned them, seven, eight, nine, and came back before you could get to twelve, panting like racehorses. Hallelujah! cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. "'Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Hallelujah! ho Dick Chirp, Ebenezer!' "'Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. "'It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off, as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore.' the floor swept and watered, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug as warm and dry and bright as a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came the fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned like fifty stomach aches. In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend the milkman. In came the boy from over the way, who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master, trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door, but one who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling—in they all came anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couple at once danced half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping, old top couple always turning up in the wrong place, new top couple starting off again. As soon as they got there, all top couples at last, another butter one to help him. When this result was brought about old Fezziwig clapping his hands to stop the dance, cried out, "'Well done!' And the fiddler plunged his hot face into a tub of porter specially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappears, he instantly began again, though there were no dancers yet, as if the Phil had been carried home exhausted in a shutter, and he were a brand- new man resolved to beat them out of sight or perish. There were more dances, there were more forfeits and more dances, and there was cake, and there was niggers, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled, when the fiddler, an artful dog-mind, the sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could have told him, struck up Sir Roger de Cavalier. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple, too, and a good stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, uh, four times old Fezziwig would have been a match for them, and so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. If that's not high praise, tell me higher and I'll use it. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. You wouldn't have predicted at any time what would have become of him next. And then old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had gone all through the dance, advance and retire, both hands to your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread the needle, and back again your place. Fezziwig cut, cut so deftly he appeared to wink with his legs and came upon his feet again without a stagger. When the clock struck eleven the domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, with shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out and wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two princesses, they did the same to them, and thus the cheerful voices died away and the lads were left to their beds, which were under the counter in the back shop. During this whole time Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene, and with his former self he corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It wasn't until now, when the bright faces of his former self and Dick were turned from him, that he remembered the ghost, and became conscious that it was looking full upon him, while the light upon its head burnt very clear. "'A small matter,' said the ghost, "'to make these silly folks so full of gratitude.' "'Small!' echoed Scrooge. The spirit signed him to listen to the two princesses who were pouring out their hearts in praise of Fezziwig, and when he had done so said, "'Why, is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise?' "'It isn't that,' said Scrooge, heated by the remark, and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. "'It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy.' To make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add or count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. He felt the spirit's glance and stopped. What is the matter? asked the ghost. Nothing particular, said Scrooge. Something, I think, the ghost insisted. No, said Scrooge, no. I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all. His former self turned down the lamps as he gave utterance to the wish, and Scrooge and the ghost again stood side by side in the open air. My time grew short, observed the spirit. Quick! This was not addressed to Scrooge or to any one whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect. For again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life his face had not the harsh and rigid lines of later years but had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice there was an eager greedy restless motion in the eye which showed the passion that had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall he was not alone but sat by the side of a fair young woman in a morning dress in whose eyes there were tears which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of christmas past it matters little she said softly to you very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if I can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve." What idol has displaced you? he rejoined. A golden one. This is an even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. "'You fear the world too much,' she answered gently. "'All your other hopes emerge into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. "'I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one "'until the master passion gain engrosses you, have I not?' "'What then?' he retorted. "'Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? "'I am not changed towards you!' she shook her head. "'Am I?' "'Our contract is an old one.' It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until, in good season, we could improve our worldly fortunes by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you are another man. I was a boy, he said impatiently. Your own feeling tells you that you are not what you are, she returned. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly have I thought of this, I would not say. It is enough that I have thought of it, and can release you." "'Have I ever sought release?' In words, no, never. "'In what, then?' "'In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope has its great end. In everything that made my love of any worth of value in your sight. If this had never been between us,' said the girl, looking mildly, but with steadiness upon him, "'tell me.' Would you seek me out now and try to win me now? Ah, no. He seemed to yield the justice of its supposition in spite of himself, but said with the struggle, You think not. I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. Heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you are free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even believe that you would choose a dowerless girl, you who, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain, or choosing her, if for a moment you are false enough to your one guiding principle to do so, do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you, with a full heart, for the love of him you once were. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. You may, the memory of what has passed half makes me hope you will have pain in this, a very, very brief time, and you will dismiss the recollection of it, gladly as an unprofitable dream from which it has happened well that you awoke. May you be happy in the life that you have chosen. She left him, and they parted. Spirit, said Scrooge, show me no more. "'Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me?' "'One shadow more,' exclaimed the ghost. "'No more!' cried Scrooge. "'No more! I do not wish to see it. Show me no more!' But the relentless ghost pinioned him in both arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene in place, a room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, so like that last, that Scrooge believed it was the same until he saw her, now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in the room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count, and unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, there were not forty children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting itself like forty. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief but no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much, and the latter, soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. What would I not have given to be one of them? Though I would never have been so rude, no, no, I wouldn't for the wealth of all the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down, and for the precious little shoe I wouldn't have plucked it off. God bless my soul to save my life. As to measuring her waist in sport, there's they did. Bold young brood, I couldn't have done it. I should have expected my arm to have grown round for the punishment and never come straight again. And yet I should have dearly liked I own, to have touched her lips, to have questioned her, that she might have opened them, to have looked upon the lashes of her downcast eyes, and have never raised a blush to have let loose waves of hair, an inch of which would be a keepsake beyond price.' In short, I should have liked, I do confess, to have the lightest license of a child, and yet have been man enough to know its value. But now a knocking on the door was heard, and such a rush immediately ensued that with a laughing face and plundered dress was borne towards it the centre of flushed and boisterous group just in time to greet the father, who had come home attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents. Then the shouting and struggling, and the onslaught that was made on the defenseless porter, the scaling him with chairs for ladders to drive into his pockets, despoil him with brown paper parcels, to hold on tight by his cravat, hug him round the neck, pobble his back, and kick his legs in irrepressible affection—the shouts of wonder and delight with which for the development of every package was received. The terrible announcement that the baby had taken in the act of putting a doll's frying pan into his mouth and was more than suspected of having swallowed a fictitious turkey glued on a wooden platter. The immense relief of finding this a false alarm, the joy, the gratitude, and ecstasy—they were all indescribable alike. It is enough that by degrees the children and their emotions had got out of the parlour, and by one stare at a time up to the top of the house when they went to bed and so subsided. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside, and when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father, and had been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. "'Bell,' said the husband, turning to his wife with a smile, "'I saw an old friend of yours this afternoon.' "'Who was it?' Guess. "'How can I? "'Tut, I don't know,' she added in the same breath, laughing as he laughed. "'Mr. Scrooge! (laughs) "'Mr. Scrooge it was. "'I passed his office window, and it was not shut up, "'and he had a candle inside. "'I could scarcely help seeing him. "'His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear, "'and there he sat alone, quite alone in the world, I do believe. "'Spirit,' said Scrooge in a broken voice, "'remove me from this place.' "'I have shown you the shadows of things that have been,' said the ghost. "'That they are what they are. Do not blame me. "'Remove me!' Scrooge exclaimed. "'I cannot bear it!' He turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face, in which some strange way there were fragments of all faces it had shown him, wrestled with it. "'Leave me! Take me back! Haunt me no longer!' In the struggle, if it can be called a struggle, in which the ghost with no visible resistance on its own part, was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary. Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright, and dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized his extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action pressed it down upon his head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so that the extinguisher covered its whole form, but though Scrooge pressed it down with all its force, he could not hide the light which streamed from under it in an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness and further of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cap a parting squeeze in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep.
0: And that's the end of the second stave of A Christmas Carol. One of the things that I found kind of interesting is that... Yes, Scrooge goes through some pretty um, unpleasant and unhappy childhood moments. And certainly there seems to be some resonance with Dickens' own life in Scrooge's young life. But his conversation with Belle and his reaction to seeing Fezziwig's party, it kind of makes me feel like, like the more modern retellings of this place more of an emphasis on the unfortunate things that happened to Scrooge as a child and less on the decisions that Scrooge made. Bell seems to make it very clear that he has changed and he's changed because he's been seduced by money and by material gain. Not that it brings him any happiness, but, but just that that's the lure of that. You know, the sparkle of the glittery objects is what's been attracting him, not her. And, and that that's a choice he made. That kind of makes the redemption story take on a different tint from the kind of victimized Scrooge aspect that we get in in so many of the modern stories. So with that, I'm going to leave you. We've listened to the first two staves. Uh, the next episode will have stave the third, the Ghost of Christmas Present. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craft lit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the winter issue at www.knitcircus.com. And Scribe Tutor, the online writing tutor offering personalized and convenient writing help for all ages. You can find more about Scribe Tutor at scribetutor.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store. Or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Travelit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.